Thank you. Please be seated and do turn with me to First John and chapter 5. First John chapter 5. The whole of last year, I took a brief series of messages on the subject of faithfulness. And basically what I was hoping to impress on your minds is the fact that God is a faithful God. It's His very nature to be truthful. He can be trusted upon concerning all His promises. And when we become Christians, we become like Him. And consequently, we too can be trusted. We too, as individuals, commit ourselves and we ensure we carry out all our promises. That's not natural. We are fallen individuals. But when the Lord saves us, we become like Christ. We are Christ-like. And so one of the ways in which we prove our conversion is simply by asking the question, how am I with my personal obligations, my personal commitments, especially when it hurts? Do I keep my word? Well, I'm moving on now to an actual consecutive expositional series, and I thought that we should use First John as the book that we will make our way through. First John is on the subject of assurance of salvation. And one of the ways in which I can easily prove that is the text that we are looking at this morning, which is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. Towards the end of his epistle, this is the way in which John puts it. I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The greatest issue to settle in life is the question of whether I am truly at peace with the living God. The reason is simple. It's the fact that all of us are in this world in a very temporal way. We will soon be gone. We were hearing a little earlier on concerning our sister Joyce, who uh, was a member here many years ago and in due season moved over to Katete. She was brought to Lusaka recently, desperately ill, and she died last week and was buried yesterday. Clearly, the route she has taken is a route we all expect to take very soon. One day, we will not be here. 
But once we go from this life, we are going to meet our maker. Our consciences bear testimony to that fact. That indeed we are a people who have an account to give. That's why we feel guilty when we do wrong. That's why we feel so nice when we do something right. God has put a conscience within us. I was reading just this week somewhere where it said that uh, children are afraid of the night. Adults are afraid of the light. And the reason why they are afraid of the light is obvious. It is because we don't want to be seen doing that which is wrong. But you see, God sees all things. He sees through the darkness as if it's bright daylight. And we know it. Jesus himself said that the things that have been whispered in, 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 in darkness, in inner rooms, will be as it was shouted from the rooftops. Because God knows all things. Now, therefore, each one of us wants to know. Because we know we are born sinners. We know we've sinned against God. And indeed, some of us have even asked God to forgive us. The question is, how do I know I am forgiven? How do I know that if I die today, God will receive me? Well, First John basically is all about that. It's a book in which John gives us a number of tests so that by the time we make our way through this epistle, we will know whether we are truly God's children or not. We will know whether God would receive us in his heaven upon us dying. Why is this important? It's because non-Christians are in three categories. There's the first category, and it is of those who are opposed to Christianity. They are violent when you try to share with them the good news concerning Jesus Christ. There is a second category, and it is those who are indifferent. They are not opposed. They are willing to listen. In fact, if you invite them to church, they probably might even come once or twice. They, 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 they want to hear you. And then their lives go on. They, they are indifferent. They do not commit themselves to the demands of Christ. There's a third category. And it is of those who think they are Christians, but they are not. They're in the category of those that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7, who will say to him on the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And he doesn't say to them you were lying, rather you are lying. That's not true. Rather he says to them, get away from me, I never knew you you workers of iniquity. In other words, you and I never really met 
as a sinner coming to a savior. That never happened. Yes, you may have done those activities you're talking about, but you remained a worker of iniquity. In other words, you remained a sinner to your dying day. Therefore, you must now pay for it. The last one is the most common in Zambia. 80% of Zambians claim to be Christians. But you can be sure that less than 15 or 10% are genuine Christians. So there is a whole mass of humanity that upon asking the question, are you a Christian, would immediately say yes. But when you start applying the tests of 1 John, they begin to shift in their chairs. Because they are not. So let's do ourselves a favor in the next few months by going through this epistle together. Let's ask ourselves the questions again and again. Do I pass this test? Do I pass the next test? Do I pass the next test? Let's be sincere. Let's be honest with ourselves. After all, we owe it to ourselves. On the judgment day, you will stand alone. You will not be hiding behind anyone. Very well then. Today, I just want to give you a bit of a bird's eye view of this book. And I want to begin by saying that John himself in this text tells us that he has written some things deliberately to help us process this thought. Back to our text. He says there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What are these things that he has written? They are essentially two. And I will take you to two passages to try and quickly prove my point. And it is this, that there are two lines of tests. For Christianity. Two lines. If you want to know that you are a Christian, there is one and two that you need to combine. The first one is an ethical test. It's, it's a moral test. It is a test that says, has my life changed? At one time, I was living a life of sin. Have I turned 180 degrees and I'm now living a life of uprightness, godliness, holiness? Can I speak like that? Because if I cannot speak in those terms, I am not saved. Because Jesus does not only save us from the hell that sins take us to, he saves us also from the sins that take us to hell. Let me quickly prove that to you 
by going two chapters backwards. So chapter 3, First John chapter 3, verse 4 to verse 10. It's a slightly lengthy passage, but it's so clear, straightforward, pointed, that you won't get lost. First John 3 and verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, because sin is lawlessness. In other words, you become a god on your own. You live by your own rules and not by God's law. You know that he, referring to Jesus Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And here's the test now. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. That is, in human hearts. Verse 10. Therefore, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Notice, he cannot. In other words, it's not possible. He's not able to go on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God, rather who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's John. That's one of the rails. That he puts there. And as you make your way all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 5, again and again, this keeps coming up. That Jesus Christ saves morally. He saves ethically. He transforms your heart. He changes you from the inside out. And if that change hasn't happened, you are not born again. Even if you answered an altar call, even if you repeated a sinner's prayer, even if you've been baptized, even if you've joined Kabwata Baptist Church, you're still on your way to hell. That's John saying it. The second line that he writes on again and again through this epistle is that of uh, a doctrinal test. In other words, it is what you believe about Jesus 
and who Jesus is. That's equally important. And we see this, um, I'll give you one obvious example, and that is in chapter 4. So if we can just go to chapter 4, which is right in between the passage we have read and our Bible reading. This is what it says. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, there are a lot of false teachings that are there in the world. Now, here is the test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It says again, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. This is how we know. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You see, there, there is the doctrinal understanding, the doctrinal confession. This is what I believe, that God... God sent Jesus, his son, to be a savior of the world, to save us from sin. And there it is, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in Jesus. So there's the second one. How do I know that a person is a Christian? Well, one way is the change in the life. Has the life changed? Does the husband or wife say, this person has changed? Do the children say, he has changed? Do, do, do the workmates say, he or she has changed? Is there that testimony that there is a moral change? The second is by saying to the person, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he? What has he done for you as a way of getting you to heaven? These two must go together. As I said, they are two rails. And like a train, remove one rail and you won't get that train anywhere. So it's not a matter of choosing. That will me, okay, my life, yeah, you know, it's a real mess. But you know, if, if I was to undergo a test about who Jesus is, 90% upward. 
That's not good enough. Because Jesus came to change our lives. On the other hand, to simply say, well, look, me, uh, you know, this business about who Jesus is and what is done, uh, that's for you theologians. Me, I just want to live a good life. I want to, to love my neighbor and, and to keep away from everything that is sinful and evil. That apparent moral change won't last. Because you don't have the power to fight the devil. You don't have the power to fight the temptation of the world. You don't have the power to fight the sin that is already resident in your soul. You don't. It's a matter of time. So the Apostle John is saying, these are the things I want to share with you. That if you possess them, you may know that you have eternal life. In our text, he also tells us who the people are that he is writing to. Let's go back to First John chapter 5 and verse 13. He says there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, though I will be preaching evangelistically through this book, it's a book that is written positively. A book that is written to assure those who already profess faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the people he is writing to. And he's trying to say to them, look you guys. Know this, that you possess eternal life. Know it, so that you are not in any doubt. Let's think about this for a moment. What does it mean to believe in the name of the Son of God? Well, first of all, the, the understanding of the name there has to do with the way in which a person's character has been revealed. So when you go to the Bible, for instance, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, you hear the words of the angel, you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their so to believe in the name of the Son of God is to believe that this name that has been given to him truly represents his character, who he really is. And who is he? He is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of his people. He saves those who call upon Him from genuine hearts that He may save them from their sin. That's what it means. So if you claim to be a believer, 
in the name of the Son of God, what it means is that you should be able to say there was a time in your life when you were not a believer. Jesus was just some individual you had heard about, but you continued with your life as you pleased. Then came a time when you heard who he is. That he is the Savior. And consequently, you called upon his name. You really believed that he saves from sin. And you cried out to him that he may save you from sin. You believed that he saves from the penalty of sin. In other words, that if you trust in him, God will not punish you for the many sins you've already committed. You believe that he saves from the power of sin. That in calling upon him, he would break those chains that are there between you and sin that cause you to do what you know to be wrong to do. You believed it. You believed that he is a savior from the pollution of sin, the corruption of sin, the, the tendency within you to, to do that which is wrong instead of that which is right. To fail to love that which is righteous. Which ties me to the next P, that is a savior from the pleasure of sin. That at the point you are calling upon him, you love sin. But you call upon him and he breaks that love. He frees you so that now you become a lover of righteousness. Yes. A lover of righteousness. You now want to pray. You want to read the Bible. You want to live a godly, upright, righteous life in this same present evil world. You want to. It's your joy to live that kind of life. And you believe that he will also finally save you from the presence of sin. That when he takes you from this life into the next, you'll be in a place where sin does not exist at all. That in breathing your last, your fight with sin will be completely over. You believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe that he is truly a Savior. Was there such a day in your life? A day when you went from being an unbeliever to a believer. Was there such a day? When you finally said, this person can help. This is his name. He is the savior of his people. That's why he died on the cross. 
It wasn't simply because the Jewish leaders hated him and rushed him out of this world. He deliberately laid down his life as payment for sinners. I believe it. And therefore, I call upon him. Does that describe you? Because if it does, you are the one that John is writing to. And he's saying, I want to assure you that you have eternal life. Let's carry on to that last part. The Apostle John had a very clear purpose for writing this epistle to those who answer to this description. He had a very clear reason why he was hammering away on these two rails like a train in motion. There's a very clear reason why. And in his own words, here is what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Notice the tense. It's not a future tense. It's present tense. He's not saying that you may know that you will have eternal life when you die. No. He's saying that you may know that you already possess eternal life. This eternal life is given to you the moment you believe. It is eternal, first of all, because it is eternal. Let's not try and be diplomatic about it or difficult about it. Don't there sometimes when you speak to someone, something very easy, and he goes, what do you mean? Can there be more meanings than what I've said? The first reason why it is called eternal life is because it lasts forever. It is a life that defies the grave. It is a life that triumphs over death. It's a life that finally ushers you into heaven itself. But there's a second reason why it is called eternal life, and it is because it is the very life of Christ, the very life of God himself. At the beginning of this epistle, of this letter, this is the way John puts it. I'll be preaching on this this coming weekend. First John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, referring to Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life. That's what he calls him there. The word. That which was in the beginning. Which was with God. And which is God himself. Now listen to this. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it. And testified to it. And proclaimed to you. What? The eternal life. It's Jesus. This is the very life he possesses. 
as the son of God who was with God in the beginning at the beginning of time he was already there that was not the beginning of his life because he has eternal life a life that has no beginning a life that has no end a God life well John is saying if you truly believe in Jesus this is the life that has invaded you that explains the transformation wow when divine life the life that has brought life to everything in the universe indeed Ours is a derived life. That life invades your soul. What a transformation. It produces a relationship with God. Because now you are alive to Him. It's no longer a theory, a philosophy, an X to explain... A mathematical equation. No, he's as real as you are real. You now know him. And more than that, it's a life that produces morality, righteousness, holiness. Because it's a clean life. It's a holy life. God is upright and righteous. Now some people look at this verse and they say, you know, what it means is that uh, it's possible to be a Christian and not know it. That's why he is writing to these people and saying to them, I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to know that you are Christians. So you can be a Christian and not have assurance. That's not what he's talking about here. He's concerned about these people because there was so much false teaching during its rounds. Which was consequently disqualifying people who ought not to be disqualified. I remember soon after I became a Christian and I still a student at university, one of my neighbors in one of the other rooms was a Seventh-day Adventist young man. And every so often would engage in discussion. And I've never forgotten how he, he was always a troubled guy, always a troubled fellow. And when I'd ask him why he was so troubled, he, he kept saying, you know, uh, I'm just not sure that I kept the Sabbath, last Sabbath. You know, I thought like this, so I went there, you know, I, I went to the shop and bought a bullpen. Am I supposed to buy bullpens on the Sabbath? He was always going through these things. And it's very easy for, for you to, to be taught by wrong teachers to the point where you shift the basis 
on which you're supposed to have assurance that God has accepted me, that I'm going to heaven, I'm going to be with Him. I belong to Him, He belongs to me. I abide in Him, He abides in me. It's very easy for, for false teachers to, to shift you from the biblical foundation of assurance of salvation. And I remember how often I, I, I would sit with him and we go through the Bible so that he could see that assurance of salvation comes from believing in the name of the Son of God. The moral transformation from within has that happened to you. And if your answer is yes, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Rejoice in your salvation. Share the good news with everybody. And as he goes on to say to here, go into your prayer closet and pray to your father, asking him for what you need. Your father will listen to you because the the boundary, the wall that was between your soul and his has been broken. You are now his child. Call upon him that he may give you that which your soul longs after. Well, friends, that's what this epistle is all about. It is about assurance of eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you have it? Do you? If you believe in the name of the Son of God, God wants you to know that your sins are forgiven. He wants you to know that you belong to Him. He wants you to know that when you die, you are coming home. He wants you to know these things so that you might share the good news with those around you, that you might know what it means to have true joy in your heart. And you'll see it from the very beginning of this epistle, when it says, we share this with you, that our joy might be complete. That we may together rejoice in God. This is the greatest event that can ever happen in a human being. The greatest event. To go from darkness to light. From sin to salvation. From being a servant of the devil to becoming a servant of God through his son Jesus Christ. It's the most momentous event that can ever occur in a human soul. And therefore surely... You ought to know it. And you ought to rejoice in it. You ought to see that, yes, my life has changed. It has. And you ought to also be able to say, I've come to know who Jesus is. And to rejoice in that. On the other hand, and on this I must end, if you fail the test, it's not a reason to despair. 
Because Jesus invites you to himself. He says to you, have you failed the test? Come to me. Believe in me. I've been given the name Jesus because I'm a savior of my people from their sin. Those who will come to me freely. The reason why I've died on the cross is so that through me you may have God's full and free forgiveness. Yes, you've been deceived before. You failed the test. You don't need to continue failing the test. Come to me and experience this transforming power. Come to me. Trust in who I truly am. And you will not fail the test henceforth. Because the fruit of my spirit in your life will be righteousness and godliness. That's the plea that I end with. Have you failed the test? Or right where you are in that seat, you can cry to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you from your sins. Amen.